Well, good morning, Baker City Church of the Nazarene. I greet you in the name of Christ. It is good to be in his house today. Amen? Amen. Well, pastor said, I'm John, or actually, I think he said, I'm Reverend Twitchell. John is just fine. And uh, it's really good to be with you. It was wonderful to be with you yesterday. And before I say anything else, uh, congratulations. Uh, We celebrate with you on behalf of the Church of the Nazarene, on behalf of the Church of the Nazarene Foundation. We celebrate with you uh, 40 years in this location, approaching 100 years as a congregation. Uh, What a marvelous legacy of what God has done in this place. You know, buildings are just buildings, right? And we don't worship buildings. And yet they are tools that either get used and unleashed for building the kingdom of God, or they sit empty. And it didn't take me very long of wandering around yesterday with Pastor Troy showing me some of what you're doing for ministry here and how you're utilizing the buildings to realize that this is a congregation who has taken these buildings, this property, and leveraged it in incredible and remarkable ways over the last 40 years. Your community center, uh, the family life center, the gymnasium, the ministry you have to the community, your location, your worship services, your proclamation of the gospel in the last year, pushing that out onto the internet. Uh, You've just done some marvelous things as a congregation, and thank you. In the words of the Apostle Paul, thank you for your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. And uh, we're just glad to be here today and celebrate with you. Uh, Briefly, I serve your foundation. Uh, The Church of the Nazarene has a foundation. That means you have a foundation. And your foundation comes alongside people and helps them to plan for the future, to think about resources, finances, family, legacy, charitable giving strategies, all sorts of creative plans that we can use to help you in your estate planning, your tax planning, even your retirement income planning, or caring for your kids. So I've got a table up back. I'm not giving you a commercial this morning, so this is kind of it. Come see me at the table after church. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can pick up brochures. I am around this afternoon and would be happy to come over to your home, meet with you over a cup of coffee if you had more detailed questions than what we could cover up back. Uh, But I've just enjoyed being with you and learning of the ministry that you're doing here in Baker City. So again, thank you for your partnership. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Do you you remember the, the blue caterpillar? in Alice in Wonderland? A little bit? Okay, yeah. Uh, I think we've always suspected he probably um, maybe had something in that pipe that he was smoking that day. I'm not quite sure. Uh, But that was the words he said to Alice uh, in the beginning of that movie. Who are you? It's the same question that the baboon Rafiki asks the lion Simba in The Lion King. You might remember Rafiki the baboon. He goes off, he discovers uh, that Simba the prince, the lion prince, he is still alive. And Rafiki goes off to find him in the wilderness and he finds this prince, Simba the lion, he finds him picking up rocks and logs in order to find grubs for his food. Rafiki finds him and asks, who are you? What are you doing out here scrounging for bugs and worms when you could be the king of beasts on Pride Rock? 
Who are you? Jesus doesn't use these exact same words, but I am convinced it is the core of the question that the prodigal son asks himself that day when he wakes up, looks himself in the mirror, and says, what in the world am I doing here? Who are you? You remember the prodigal son, right? He asked for his inheritance early. He squandered it on foolish living, and he ended up hoping for leftover pig slop just so he wouldn't go hungry at night. One morning he wakes up, looks at himself in the mirror, and asks himself that same question, and he realizes who he is, and more importantly, whose he is. He realizes that the servants in his father's household are treated better than he is. He ought to go home and ask forgiveness, simply in hopes of a job in his father's fields. Who are you? I think it's a question we all have to ask ourselves during our lives, and sometimes we ask that question in different ways over the course of our lifetimes. It is a fundamental question of identity that each one of us must come to grips with, sometimes even a question we have to revisit. Who are you? Are you your parents? For a while, I was Roger and Jackie's son. My parents were fairly well-known in our small Maine community, uh, smaller than this community, by the way. My grandfather ran a large tractor and farming supply store that served much of the western half of the state of Maine. My parents were school teachers and very involved in the church that we attended, and it seemed that no matter where I went in my little town of Oxford, Maine, somebody knew that I was Roger and Jackie's son. And believe me, it was hard to get away with anything when you have a reputation like that. My older brothers were math and science geniuses. Now, I'm no slouch, but by the time I got to high school, I was a little tired of every teacher in the system knowing that I was Arnold's, Brian's, and Douglas's younger brother. And so at some point, I had my very own teenage rebellion. I decided I had to carve out my own identity, and I was going to do music and drama and go to Christian college to study ministry. May all of your children and grandchildren have teenage rebellions like mine. But at some point in our lives, we all have to come to the understanding and realization that we are not our parents. We are not our family. Who are you? Are you a producer? Are you what you do? You know, there was a time in our culture when people were simply known by their career. He's a mechanic. She's a lawyer. He's a barber. She delivers mail. Often, people would only have one career during their lifetimes, and I suspect in this room, some of you would say, I had one career in my lifetime. Maybe even one job that you built your life around. We were known in the community by how much we produced for our boss, how well we provided for our families. But you know there's this dirty little secret out there that many of us have already learned. You are entirely and thoroughly replaceable, right? I mean, any one of us could not make it home tonight, not go into work tomorrow, and while our coworkers might mourn our lives for a little while, the company would find someone else to do your job. Now, they might not do it as well as you do, but they would find someone else 
to do your job. You are not irreplaceable. This has become really more obvious in the last decade or two with the advent of machinery and robots and artificial intelligence. First it was the factory jobs, then it was the cashier at the grocery store, and now when I fly somewhere and I land, I use my phone to check out the rental car I'm going to use and unlock my hotel room without ever interacting with a person. The reality is this. We are all replaceable. If our identity is rooted in our productivity, if our identity is rooted in what we do, it will lead to disappointment. It will lead to loss of purpose. You are not a producer. You are not your job, how much money you make for your boss, or how well you provide for your family. Who are you? Are you a performer? And I don't necessarily mean music and art. Worship team, by the way, wonderful leading in worship this morning. Not a performance, but a leadership in worship, and thank you for that. Uh, That's part of what I mean when I say performer, but I'm also talking about people who find their identity in excellence, in how well they do what they do, right? How What other people think of them or their level of success. And I learned early on in life, if I was going to find my identity in performance, I was going to end up being disappointed. It was my freshman year in high school. I don't know who in the world thought it was a good idea, but somehow I got tapped to sing the national anthem. Now, I am forever to this day grateful that they asked me to sing the national anthem at the Tuesday afternoon freshman game (laughs) instead of the Friday evening varsity game. Uh, I'm sure I had ample opportunity to practice and to use the gymnasium so I could hear the sound system. I don't really know what happened, but it was one of these deals where you got your note off from a pitch pipe and there was no accompaniment, and I got in there in front of all my classmates, and well, let's just say that three minutes later and having gone through about five musical keys, I managed to wrap up one of the hardest songs there is to sing and fled the gymnasium with tears running out of my eyes, thoroughly humiliated. But the reality is this, I don't care how good you are. I don't care how well you do your job. I don't care how successful you are. There is always somebody better. And if we put our identity in our success, if we put our identity in our performance, we will one day find ourselves coming up short. Friends, be freed by this idea. You are not how well you perform. We could go on. Some people find identity in their possessions. They are toy collectors or wealth accumulators. They surround themselves with things that bring them comfort or status. But Jesus reminds us that these treasures can be ruined by moth or rust or that thieves can break in and steal our treasure. He tells us, don't store up treasures on earth for yourself, but store up treasures in heaven. And if you find your identity in your stuff, in your possessions, you will find that they break, they wear out, they don't actually satisfy your deepest longings. Those who build their lives as wealth accumulators eventually discover they will never actually have enough because there's always someone who has more. We could, some people find their identity in their personality, right? The, the guy who was the class clown, the girl who was the good listener. Others find their identity in their popularity, how well they are known, but they eventually learn that people are fickle and friends aren't always faithful. Still other people root their identity in their physical body, their health, 
the bodybuilder or the, the beach body. I know we're a long ways away from the beach here, but you know what I'm saying. We, but we all know, we all know that as we grow older, our bones begin to creak. Our skin begins to sag and our hair begins to turn gray or fall out. Who are you? Are you your parents? Are you a producer, a performer? Do you find identity in possessions? Are you defined by your personality, your popularity, or your physique? By some of us, we're tempted to define ourselves by our past. And perhaps it is most freeing of all friends to know that you are not your past. You are not mistakes that you have made. You are not your history. You are not broken relationships. You are not an addiction. You are not your past. Well, I think this question of identity is important, but I don't want to just stand up here and talk about my ideas about identity. I think it's really important to go back to the very beginning of time and see what it is that God created us to be. Our scripture text this morning will be from Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 is a long chapter. I am not going to read the whole thing. But let me just remind you quickly, and this is important, on days 2 through 5, we get to the end of the day of creation. This is the great creation hymn of Genesis 1. And every day we get to the end and there's this refrain, God surveys the work of creation and God sees that it was good. Right, so you know the story. I'm glad. That's good. We're going to pick up this morning in Genesis 1, verse 24. It's the beginning of the sixth day, and I'd like to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word? Genesis 1, beginning in verse 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. We're again halfway now through the sixth day. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So I know you know this because you did it right along with me, just like I hoped you would. Let me point it out. At the end of each of the days of creation, God looks at the creation and he sees it was good. We get halfway through the sixth day, and just in case we've missed the point, 
one more time, after all the animals and the birds and the livestock, God looks at it and says, it was good. And then God had a twinkle in his eye. And, and I believe that God suddenly knew, well, maybe he didn't suddenly knew, maybe he always knew, but he had this twinkle in his eye and he knew what he could do to plus creation. He knew what he could do to make creation even better. He knew what he could do to make creation exactly what he wanted it to be. And I believe that God reached down into the dirt and with the palm of one hand, he, he reached up and he began to create. And with that twinkle in his eye, I think God looked all the way as far into the future as he could see, which was eternity. And he saw you, and he saw you, and he saw you, and he saw me. And as he put humanity together, he wasn't just putting together Adam and Eve, he was putting together humanity. And suddenly, it wasn't just good, it was what makes the difference? The difference is that out of all of creation, humanity is the only part that was created in God's image. It is the only part of creation that was designed in its very formation with the purpose of reflecting the image of God to each other and to the world. You see, the creation story doesn't begin with sin. Let me just say that one more time because it's so important. The creation story does not begin with sin. Oh, sin enters the scene soon enough. But before we dive into disobedience in the fall, let's take a moment to live into this knowledge. The creation narrative doesn't start that way. It's been far too common for us in thousands of years of church history to just kind of jump into the brokenness and the sinfulness of humanity. So much so, I believe it's even impacted the way we translate and understand Scripture. Pastor quoted this morning one of my favorite psalms. You did it in your prayer. It was two lines from Psalm 8. Uh, probably the very first psalm that I memorized as a child. And there's one line that goes like this in the Old King James, and I'm going to pick up where you left off. The Old King James says this, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Now let's see how this works. You made him a little lower than the... Okay, the angels. Good. You all know Psalm 8 too. I'm glad, except for one thing. I have been told by people who are a lot smarter than I am and understand Hebrew a lot better than I do that the Hebrew word there that we translate as angels is never anywhere else in Scripture translated as the word angel. The Hebrew word there is Eloah, which might sound, if any of you know any little glimpse of Hebrew, like one other really important Hebrew word, Elohim which is the Hebrew word for Almighty God. Friends, Psalm 8 does not put humanity just a little bit lower than the angels. Psalm 8 puts humanity just a little bit lower than Almighty God. This is good news. You're the pinnacle of creation, friends. You are not only human. You are not just human. You are human. It's a good thing. It's the best part of creation. It's what God created us to be. Now, I get sin, brokenness. That's good. It comes into the story, okay? I'm not denying that. 
But sin isn't what makes us human. In fact, Reverend Shauna Gaines, at one point the chaplain at Trevecca Nazarene University and now pastoring the college church there, she puts it this way. I think I have a slide for it. Sin isn't what makes you human. Sin is what makes you less than human. Friends, here's what makes you human. You were made in the image of God. This is who you are. You are an image bearer of Almighty God. You are a reflector of God's divine attributes and characteristics. You say, well, pastor, what does that mean? I want to share two practices from ancient culture that I think will help us understand this. The first is referenced in Daniel chapter 3. You might remember in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar builds this big giant statue in the middle of town and issues a command that when the trumpets play and the horns blow and the drums bang, that, that everyone should bow down, right? And you may remember that Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down to the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. It gets thrown into the fiery furnace. All right, give me a couple head nods. We remember the story. Okay, good. I want to talk about the statue for a minute because it's important. This is actually a cultural practice of the day. A new king would take over a group of people or build his empire or add people to his empire, and one of the best things he could do to remind them that they are subjects of the king is to build a big statue in the middle of town. So as you were going about your daily business, as you were doing your work, as you were uh, buying and selling things, as you were going home to be with your family, you'd see out of the corner of your eye, oh, there's a statue of King Nebuchadnezzar, that's right. I'm not a free person. I'm a subject of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's in charge around here. This is his kingdom. The statue was there to remind everyone that Nebuchadnezzar was king. Just put a pin in that for just a moment. We'll come back to it. There's another story in Matthew chapter 22, another ancient practice. There were people. They were setting out to test Jesus, to trap him, right? This happened often in the Gospels. And they come to him with a question. They say, Jesus, is it right to pay taxes or not? And Jesus asked them to pull the coin out of their pocket that they used to pay the tax, and he asks them whose image is inscribed on the coin. Which leads us to that passage we often quote on April 15th. Uh, this year, maybe it was May 17th we got to quote it. I don't know. You, you know the verse, right? Give unto... Right. But, you know, we often we stop there, and it's unfortunate because what's the most important part of that verse is what comes next. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar, but... Give unto God what is God's. Jesus is saying something really important. He says, you're going to give this coin to Caesar because it has Caesar's image on it. You give to God the thing that belongs to God. What has God's image on it? Us. Exactly right. Give to God the thing that has God's image stamped on it, your heart. But the cultural practice here is very similar to that of the statue. In those days, the Caesars would stamp their image on the coin. It was the currency of the land. As far as the coins could travel around the empire, you knew. Oh, I'm part of the Roman Empire. Caesar's in charge. This is how far Caesar's influence goes. This is what the kingdom looks like. To put it another way, in ancient times, statues and coins were designed to show who the king was, what type of kingdom it was, and how far that kingdom's influence was. But in the Ten Commandments, hang with me just a minute, we're almost to the point of wrapping those things all together. In the Ten Commandments, God makes it very clear. You shall not make any graven images. Don't make statues of me, God says. Don't make coins of me. 
Don't stamp my face on things. Have you ever wondered why that was so important for God to say that? I think I know. And I think it all goes all the way back to Genesis 1 when God made humanity in the very image of God. God doesn't want statues because he has living, breathing statues that represent him to the world. God doesn't want currency with his face stamped on it because he has living, breathing coins that travel all over the place, spreading the joy and the goodness of the kingdom of God, bringing light to every last corner of darkness. In other words, back to my question, who are you? You are the image bearers who show who God is. You are the statues that show what type of God he is. You are the currency that moves around the world reminding everybody how far God's kingdom reaches into every deep, dark corner. You are not your parents. You are not a producer, a performer. You are not your possessions, your personality, your popularity, or your physique. You are not your past. You are an image bearer of Almighty God, designed to show forth God's divine attributes, His love, His compassion, His creativity. You are designed for generosity, for holiness, for being a blessing to others. You are granted stewardship and authority over this world that God has created, this world in which we live. I find it really interesting The first instruction to Adam and Eve wasn't about eating fruit and not eating fruit of the tree. That comes later in chapter 2. The first instruction God gave humanity was to have dominion and authority and stewardship over the created realm. God put them in charge of what he had made. And I want to suggest to you that it is our calling then as image bearers of God It is our calling to form and shape and craft this world in ways that are consistent with God's kingdom, to do everything that we can to influence the shape of the world and the culture that we leave behind to our children and our grandchildren. Friends, you and I, we have this shared responsibility, this sacred divine calling to shape the world we leave behind. We are responsible for our role in shaping our communities, our towns, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our society. And together we bear a sacred responsibility for the state of the church that we leave behind us. This is uh, one of the reasons you have a foundation, by the way. We exist to help you shape the world in ways that are consistent with God's kingdom using portions of your resources, the things that God has entrusted in your care to care for your family, but to leave legacies of faithfulness and generosity that impact the kingdom of God. I mentioned we've got strategies to help you save on taxes and work with your estate plan and increase your income in retirement. We can do all those things, but that's not why we exist. We exist to help you leave a legacy that shapes the world you leave behind the world God has entrusted to your care and to shape it in ways that are consistent with God's kingdom. We could all name individuals and families who have used incredible wealth to shape the world in their image, right? 
Uh, we could talk about oil barons. We could talk about entertainment tycoons. We have cities and monuments and buildings and businesses and national parks and all sorts of things that are named after these people who used their influence to shape the world in their particular image. But that's not our calling, is it? Our calling is to shape the world not in my image, not in your image, but to shape it in the image of God. And regardless of our resources, little or a lot, we each have to answer the question, what am I going to do with the currency of my life? What am I going to do with this divine coin that God has asked to move around the world into every dark corner and to bring light and holiness and gospel? And each of us has the same responsibility that goes back to that very first commandment given to Adam and Eve to shape, to have dominion, authority, and stewardship in this world. I'll share you one story this morning. I think that's what Herman and Clarice Dunlop did. I think I've got a picture of them up here. Herman and Clarice were a couple I knew from back in Maine. And I just got to tell you, from sitting down at dinner last night, they would have fit in perfectly here in Baker City. I just, I mean, I just know. I mean, they were this wonderful, friendly, hospitable couple. They were full of joy. They had, they had quirky Maine humor. You guys have quirky Baker City humor. But they had this quirky humor. They had this love for all people and this openness and this passionate love for God. And I remember Herman showing up to district gatherings in uh, overalls and a plaid flannel shirt, always with a joke to tell, always ready to make you feel right at home. Now, Herman and Clarice, they were not pastors. They were not missionaries. They were dairy farmers in the little town of Skowhegan, Maine. But they understood this call of stewardship, and they managed the farm that they had inherited from their parents as though it was God's farm. As the story has been told to me, countless young men and women came to the Dunlops to find a job on the dairy farm. They didn't just find a job. They encountered God's love, and they encountered the gospel message. And I'm told that many, many people accepted Christ through working on the dairy farm with the Dunlops, and nearly a dozen people accepted a call to ministry while working on that farm, some going on to be pastors, missionaries, district superintendents, other church leaders. And Herman used to like to say, this farm produced a lot more than just milk. Today, a portion of that land now belongs to the Skowhegan Church of the Nazarene. They built a new building for worship and ministry. Two other parcels of that farmland were placed into a charitable trust at the Nazarene Foundation. The parcels were sold, reinvested, and those proceeds have been providing Clarice with income during her retirement and will continue to do so for the rest of her life. Someday in the future... The remainder of those trusts will become the basis for two endowments that will fund ministry year after year until Jesus returns. We're going to continue to help Herman and Clarice shape the world even after they've gone to be with Jesus. Indeed, that dairy farm has produced and will continue to produce a lot more than just milk. So let me come back to how I started. Who are you? How do you want to be remembered? What is the legacy that you will leave behind for those who come after you? How will you shape the world in ways that are consistent with the kingdom of God? And what will you do with the currency of your life? Let me remind you, if you heard nothing else this morning, hear this, my friends. You are a dearly loved child of God, created in God's image. 
called for His purposes, to do the work that He has set in front of you, partnering with God for the sake of the world. You are the living statue that shows what God's kingdom looks like. You are the currency of the kingdom that travels around the globe into every deep, dark corner, taking the light and the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us go forth and live into that high and holy calling. Let's pray together. Almighty and gracious God, thank you again for the the stories of faithfulness and generosity and passion that I've heard over this weekend and others that were shared around tables last night and in the foyer this morning. Lord, we don't do that to take the thanks for ourselves because the glory all goes to you. And every one of those individuals I've talked to would say, it was all God who did it. It was God's miracle. This building was God's miracle. This grouping of people, these, these stories are all because God was doing something. But Lord, I also know it took faithful people, many of whom are in this room, to be open and obedient in partnership with you. And so this morning, I thank you for them. And may each of us regardless of what generation we are, regardless of what age we are, may each of us pick up the vision. May we be open to partnering with you to go wherever you call us to go, to do whatever you ask us to do, to give however you ask us to give. And Lord, in doing so, may we bring glory to your name and may we carry the light of the gospel into every deep, dark corner in this world so that all would know of your love and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It's in his name that we pray, amen.